Welcome to episode three of Race Class. Legislation restricting the teaching of race and racism in public schools and government entities has spread across the country. In our effort to respond, BU law professor Jonathan Feingold, whose scholarship explores the relationship between race, law, and mind sciences, and us, the attitude with Arnie Arneson, are offering race class. We offer it once a month. It is a course conversation where listeners can hear what it's like to approach race and racism from a place of curiosity and history rather than fear and anxiety. So stick around, folks. Episode three. If it is this Thursday of the month, it must be race class. Episode three. And I'm going to start how I always start. Legislation restricting the teaching of race and racism in public schools and government entities has spread across the country. In our effort to respond, BU law professor Jonathan Feingold, whose scholarship explores the relationship between race, law, and mind sciences, and the attitude, that's me, are offering race class, a once a month course conversation where listeners can hear what it's like to approach race and racism from a place of curiosity and history rather than fear and anxiety. Jonathan, I am so grateful that you're here this week. I mean, they must have planned that they were going to like have all these Supreme Court conversations with Katanji Jackson Brown because it was like kind of a study in sort of subtle racism for eight hours. And I thought, well, how appropriate because not only do I want us to sort of get into what we're gonna be talking about in this class, which are the, the five categories where race matters, resources, expectations, treatment, perceptions, condition. But before we get into that, I would love to get your reaction to what was happening yesterday. And I thought it was so interesting that the GOP was tweeting, linking Katanji Brown Jackson with critical race theory. And I kept thinking, so Jonathan, did they ask Amy Coney Barrett about critical race theory? I don't think so. So welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me, Arnie. It's always such a pleasure to be here. I'll just offer two very quick takes. The first is that it is difficult to imagine a more qualified, deserving candidate for the role of a Supreme Court justice. It, it's just, it's difficult to. So, so on the one hand, you know, I'm just in awe of like our good fortune of a country to likely have Ketanji Brown Jackson joining the court, uh, which seems like it will happen, you know, notwithstanding the treatment that she and that we as a country received from some of the GOP senators, I think the only thing I'll say is that it was disrespectful to many of us and to the Constitution for so many reasons that are related to, but arguably also transcend this class. And so that's my quick take. And I'm happy that we have a very different sort of space here yes. to think critically and earnestly and humbly about this really complex thing that we call race. And so today we're going to just do a little bit of work. We never have all that much time, but the goal is to just augment our ability to talk about this thing called race. And so I'm excited to jump in with you right now. 
Just to let you know, we had asked our previous speaker, Robert Hockett, who's also a professor of law at Cornell, about what he thought. And I'm just going to sort of share it with you. He said that the Republicans were almost Pavlovian. It's like you put up a black woman, they know exactly where they're going to go. You know, it doesn't it, it there's not even a thought process. It's it's kind of a, a knee jerk response. And you saw it in broad display uh, yesterday, uh, which was Tuesday during the hearings. And just before we get into a lot of the other things, the other thing I thought was interesting is we just sort of touch a little bit about what is the current events of the month since we last talked. And not only is it linking Katanji Brown-Jackson with critical race theory, but it's Governor Kristi Noem signing a bill limiting divisive concepts, critical race theory in colleges. It's Republican Senator Mike Braun says the Supreme Court was wrong in legalizing interracial marriage. And then you have DeSantis who is eyeing a special session to target Florida's Black-held congressional seats. You read this and you keep thinking, is this real? This isn't a daily show. This isn't The Onion. But these are the headlines coming out just this month, frankly, in the last two weeks, Jonathan. And again, another reason why, you know, race class is so important. No, I, I think that's right. It is very real. It is very disturbing, or at least it should be very disturbing to see what's happening across the country. And yeah, if nothing else, we are all better off just having more tools to think about all of the central organizing forces that shape our lives and race and racism is at the center of that. You talked about the different conditions, you know, the, the idea that, that we should look at, at these five categories where race matters. And we're not going to have time to get into depth about any of them, but I really think it's important for people to look at them because by looking at these categories, you're kind of like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it isn't one thing. It's the five fingers on your hand. And the first one you bring up, the first category is resources. So define what you mean by resources and why do you connect race to resources? Uh, let me just take a half step back, which is to situate us uh, in the conversations that we're having right now. And so we know, you know, I think most of the folks, if not everyone who's listening to these conversations agrees that race matters. Uh, we're more familiar with terms like structural racism. I think for many of us, we still have a hard time saying more precisely, well, what does that mean? How does race matter? Uh, or in other words, how does race matter even when we're not intentionally seeing or naming or accounting for or acting on this thing called race? And so for our purposes today, we're going to go through five speed rounds. Hopefully we'll get to a bonus round, but five speed rounds. So you don't have much time to talk about, like you just mentioned, five different ways in which race shapes our lives. This is not meant to be exhaustive. Each of these could get their own semester, but it's nonetheless a start that, again, is just meant to help us build out our racial sophistication uh, and literacy. And as you said, you know, the first is, and those five, just to give everyone a heads up, are resources, presumptions, treatment, perceptions, and conditions. Mm -hmm. And so resources first. So uh, like, what's the basic insight? And I think this is the one that will be uh, maybe most resonant for most listeners is that at the level of individuals and communities, race shapes our access to critical resources. And as just a very quick footnote, even here, when I say something like race shapes, so much is left unsaid. Um, but still, for purposes of developing you know, a broader analytical rubric to think with greater precision, the insight is at the level of individuals and communities, race shapes our access to critical resources. You even have this bonus round called the math class. And in the math class, I think resources, I think math. 
You know, you, you, you look at access, what do they have to access to capital? Do they have access to buy the, you know, buying the home, the home that ultimately becomes the most important asset? How many whites own homes? How many blacks own homes? What is that happening? You look at income and you look at the ability to sort of get the job and you start asking the question about race and how does it matter? You look at where they're living and we, we talk about the, the conditions of living in urban blight, who lives in urban blight, you know, and who does not. And all those things become a function of both resources, which becomes a function of math, which becomes a function of opportunity. Yeah. And so like just a very quick example here, if you want to, so think about the most racially segregated municipalities in Massachusetts, where I live, are predominantly white, like the predominantly white neighborhoods that are, you know, we like referred to as like the leafy green suburbs or what have you. Uh, those are places where you're more likely to find schools, high schools, often public schools, that are more likely than not to provide AP courses. Uh, your family's more likely than not to have access to expensive test prep. Now, having AP courses, we should never conflate with a good school and access to test prep, we should never conflate with, I don't know, some like meaningfully different uh, academic uh, talent or potential, but those are resources that matter because those are things that elite universities value. And so, you know, it's one example. We could have many others, um, but, you know, it's one way to think about this one particular way in which race matters is that it shapes our access to resources. Access to resources isn't just about the moment with access to resources, Jonathan. I keep thinking about I live in this mansion, Jonathan. How do I live in this mansion? Because of inheritance. So it's not even that you had access to research at the moment. It's what you're able to pass on to your children and to your grandchildren. So you're giving them an opportunity that doesn't exist if you don't start with the resources initially. So even if I'm, I never go to college or I never work, do a job, I already start above so many people because I've had that opportunity to inherit the wealth of the past. And if there is no past, there is no resources to be able to inherit. And I think that's a really helpful point, because when we're talking about race, we should also always be talking about the present, but then also the past and right. intergenerational, like you, you can't understand nor speak coherently about the now without um, the then. And I'll just say one, you know, final thing, and then we'll move on to round two. You know, I, I can imagine someone listening and saying, yeah, but whiteness doesn't guarantee wealth or networks or access. There's so many poor white people. And the response is, yeah, of course, that is true. Whiteness has never been inoculation against poverty and impoverishment and everything that comes with it. But that certainly doesn't mean that race isn't a factor that shapes our access to key social, economic and political resources. Uh, both exist, like both are true. Um, and there's no reason to think that because one is true, um, the other is not. Well, I'm looking at a, at a, at a graph. And in, in 2016, the, uh, the wealth of whites was $149,000. The wealth of blacks was 13. You know, and that was 2016. And the numbers have only actually grown wider. So I just want people to know sometimes doing the math is useful as we have the conversation. Now, what do you mean by presumptions? Great. So our second speed round, and we might even have to speed up um, because our time is short. It's just the basic insight that, you know, if we're walking on the street or in class, people that we encounter will often make presumptions about us based on what they perceive our racial identity to be. It could be a presumption about aptitudes, our personality, whether we're athletic or not, what our work ethic is. And so here, for an example, I just want to talk about presumptions of competence and belonging 
you know, in elite academic institutions. Like I'm looking across the river now. I think I can see Harvard over there. Uh, and so the question is this, at Harvard, in sort of a racial sense, which students enjoy a presumption of competence and belonging? Or put differently, whose presence is never questioned? That's the best line yet. Whose presence is never questioned? You're absolutely right. And I think, you know, the answer is white students. Um, and someone might push back and they would say, well, wealthy white students. I'll say, okay, sure. Well, you know, let's say wealthy white students, their presence not questioned. And then so my next question would be at Harvard, sort of like which group, and we could think about both race and economic status, socioeconomic status, which group has the largest percentage and gross number of students admitted, not because of what we would ever consider academic qualifications, but because of nepotism, which I'm just using as shorthand for legacy admissions. And the answer there is wealthy white students. One stat that I saw recently is from, I think a period of time from maybe the admit years of 2015 to 2019, 43% of admitted white students, 43%, almost 50% of all white admins were either legacy or another category that received some sort of, you know, just non-merit sort of network-based preference. And, you know, so it's just meant to highlight the disjuncture between, you know, facts on the ground and who enjoys a particular presumption of competence and belonging, which, you know, has all sorts of other downstream consequences. Let me just stop you and then we'll go to number three, but let me just say something. We had a, a, a black state rep a number of years ago and we get these little license plates and the license plates means that when you go through the toll booth, you get waived. Okay. You don't have to pay. So she was driving through the toll booth and it happened over and over again. And instead of being waived, she'd be stopped. And then the person behind the toll booth said, where did you get the car? She was an elected official, everyone. She actually earned those plates because she was elected. But without fail, there was a presumption because she was not white that she could not be a state rep and therefore she was challenged. So she couldn't go through the toll booth without actually being consulted. That's a presumption. You know, presumptions matter, but presumptions often lead to differences in treatment. And so that's round three. Round three is treatment. Uh, and the insight, again, it's pretty modest that our perceived racial identity or how others perceive us tends to shape how others treat us, how they might evaluate our performance, whether or not they engage us um, with respect, whether or not you know they're gonna pull us over for a traffic infraction, make us go into a different line at the border or the airport. Um, so you know it's a, a pretty um, basic insight. One salient example uh, that Kamala Harris has been working on is differences in treatment with respect to home appraisals. Uh, and so I just pulled up an AP article that was outlining uh, a new plan that uh, Vice President Harris is, I think, expected to release tomorrow. And there was just a quote there that said, uh, one black homeowner in Indianapolis found that found the appraised value of her home went from $125,000 to $259,000 after she declined to state her race in her application and removed all family photos of African-American art in the home. Now, it's one anecdote, but it's consistent with, you know, boatloads of research and personal experience. Um, and it's just an example of how race can shape the way that we are treated. 
And, and that idea of treatment, if you ever listen to Cory Booker tell the story of his life story and his parents buying the first home, they wouldn't sell the first home to his parents. So his parents found a white couple to stand in for them. They sold the home to the white couple and then the black couple showed up. And that was Corey's parents. So how old is Cory Booker? So you're hearing that story that Kamala Harris is going to be sharing tomorrow. And then you hear the story of Cory Booker and Cory Booker is a is a U.S. senator and understand that I feel like we're running in place when it comes to that issue of treatment. And that is just so shocking. What about perceptions? Round four and I switched up the names a little bit. Um, is uh, perspectives. Oh. So round four, it's perspectives. Uh, and it, so it's a little bit um, different way in which race um, shapes uh, the world we live in. But the insight is this, our racial identity and the experiences that come along with that from living in a society in which we're racialized one way or another often shapes how we perceive the world. Now, what this means is that we can be in the same room as someone, we can see the exact same thing or imagine jurors see the exact same evidence we actually draw very different conclusions. And I'm actually to sort of highlight this, draw, pull some examples from a study that I conducted as a law student at UCLA. So me and, and one of uh, my colleagues, we you know, asked our peers a number of questions. And you know, fortunately for us, uh, they answered. <laughs> one of the prompts, um, and it was just asked in the question, the response was, do you agree or do you disagree with this statement? And the statement was non-white students face challenges at UCLA law that similarly situated white students don't face. So again, the prompt or the statement, non-white students face challenges at UCLA law that similarly situated white students don't face. Now, students of color, and that's obviously aggregating a lot of different groups of students, but students of color, among them, 70% agreed with the statement, 16% disagreed, um, and then a, a number uh, didn't respond. For white students, for students who identified as white, 42% agreed and 32% disagreed. Now, you know, there's a couple sort of insights that come from this. One is that, you know, even within so racial groups, even among white students, there's a lot of disagreement, a lot of variance, but there's a 30 percentage point gap right. between students of color and white students with respect to whether or not they agree. Now, let me just say, um, share one other question and, or statement in response. The statement was, professors in first year courses actively recognize and promote open discussions about race. Among students of color, 62% disagreed. So 62% felt that professors did not actively recognize and promote open discussion about race. Whereas with white students, it was 40%, it's about a 20% gap and split among white students, 42 agreed um, and 40 disagreed. Whereas with students of color, 20% agreed uh, and just about 60 disagreed. And so, you know, the insights, it's not meant to be groundbreaking. It's consistent with like essentially any poll or survey um, that you will find. And the lesson is not that racial identity determines how we think, like certainly we're all individuals and our experience um, comes from all sources of identity um, and personal history, but it does shape how we perceive the world. Um, and that, you know, something that we can um, talk about uh, in multiple ways. But so that's round four, and that is perspectives. I keep thinking about what does open and promote mean? 
So again, that's really what it comes down to. You know, if you've mentioned it once, well, of course they've opened and promoted it. Look at, we discussed it last month. And then open and promote from the perspective of someone who is a person of color might be, yeah, once a month. <laughs> you know, it's again, that is your perspective and your perspective comes from your experience. I mean, there's just no question or, or what you're attuned to hearing and your expectation of what you're attuned to hearing. Our, our last condition, our last one is actually conditions. So describe to me what you mean with this category, conditions. So here, so, so it's an insight and it's at the the features of the environments we move through. So whether that's, you know, on the street, in the classroom, features of the environment can either lift us up, you know, and propel us forward or burden us uh, and hold us back because of our racial identity. Uh, and so we can think of this in terms of racial headwinds that hold us back, that, you know, prevent us from thriving or tailwinds that propel us forward. Give me an example of what you mean by tailwinds or headwinds. What, what is this, this condition? I'm still having a difficulty sort of wrapping my arms around it. So um, I'll do so in two quick ways. One is like the question that we should always be asking is whether or not environmental cues. And so you can think of cues as pictures on the wall, sort of statues in the courtyard, gotcha. the identity of the individuals in positions of power, whether all of those signal that people from our group are valued, respected, and held in high esteem in the relevant community. Now, there's a, a technical sort of term for the harm that can arise when that's not the case, which is stereotype threat. And stereotype threat, you know, it's a robustly studied social psychological phenomenon that refers to essentially the psychological headwinds we experience when we think that our failure, like on a particular performance, um, we'll confirm a negative stereotype that folks hold about our group. Um, and that psychological burden actually depresses our, our performance. Stereotype threat is most likely to arise when environments simultaneously make a particular aspect of our identity salient and when members of that group face a negative stereotype in the domain. And to get even more concrete, let's just think about it with respect to gender. And you can never do just gender because we're always imagining gender in racialized ways. Um, but just think gender and the corporate boardroom. If you are like Arnie, like you have probably have a lot of experience with this in the state house. Yeah. But if you are the lone woman in a corporate boardroom or in a political office in a space that historically has been dominated by men and, and um, values associated with maleness, it's likely to both make your, as a woman, your gender identity salient, and you're going to be very conscientious of those associated stereotypes. Now, just your awareness of that, it's likely to just tax you. It's essentially an identity contingent tax that only you have to bear. And it's traceable in part to the environment and broader social narratives. Again, sort of turning back to many of the other sort of concepts we've been talking about from presumption to treatment to resources, uh, to perspectives. We only have a few minutes left. I, yeah. I, I, gotta, I gotta ask this question because I, I do see it. And I think it's actually important. Is there any setting where you can say race is irrelevant? You asked that question in, in your syllabus and I'm thinking, how can there be any setting where race is irrelevant? How do you hide race? How do you don't acknowledge it? I can't put my finger on any environment where that would be the case. I think it's a really good question. I think maybe a different question that I often find more helpful as a starting point is how is race relevant 
Like, because certainly race is relevant. Like, gravity is always going to be relevant in one way or another. But how is it relevant? And to the extent race is operating in ways that is leading to consequences or outcomes that we dislike, what are the just prophylactic measures we can be putting into place to buffer against those outcomes? We have almost no time left, but I think we have time for a very quick bonus round, which is math class. Anyone who, if you came for math class, it's your lucky day um, because we're getting into it. And so l- let me just set it up like this. It's a little sort of, you know, um, slightly stylized um, math question, but, but I think it's helpful um, for illuminating again this question, how race matters. So imagine the skeptic, imagine someone like emails me and they say, John, I dig it, race matters. But how much does it matter? Because it seems like a lot of the things you're talking about will only like matter on the margins. And so sure, race matters, but does it like really matter uh, in sort of bold italics? And so to think through it, uh, how even if it's just a lot of little things aggregating up uh, in about a minute, like just walk through this thought experiment thing. So Arnie, imagine that you and I are English lit professors. And to get super specific, imagine we focus on creative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. We both get hired into the same department. And we have, like, if you could do some like magic test to determine it, we have the exact same abilities and training. Now that in a sense sort of erases the trajectories that got us there and how our different identities either sort of interact with headwinds or tailwinds, but just assume for this example that we have precisely the same abilities and training. Our department has a pretty wacky promotion structure where we are evaluated every month for eight years and every month we either get to keep going or we get kicked out. And if we make it through these eight years, we get tenure and live that, you know, that life of luxury The good news is that every month we have a 99% chance of advancing. So that's the good news. Uh, There is a but, and that but is that I get a 0.3% boost because of my gender, and Arnie, you get a 0.3% hit. And now this example is, you know, presuming we're both white, and so race is not sort of interacting as much as gender is. So that means that I have a 99.3% chance of advancing each month. You have a 98.7% chance of advancing. You know, doesn't seem like a big deal. But after eight years, what are our different chances of success? Mine, you know, if we're calculating compound interest, 50.9%, not great, barely over 50. Yours, 28.5%. And I'm just going to keep this going a little bit further to try to add sort of a racial dimension onto it. Now, Arnie... Imagine you were Asian American. Imagine all your colleagues perceived you as Asian American. So there's a racial sort of dimension here now. So imagine that my boost actually moves to 0.5% because of my race and gender. And the hit you take is to 0.5%. So we're now at 99.5, 98.5. You know, it's 1%. How much does that matter? Well, at the end of, you know, this quote unquote tournament of merit, I have a 61.8% chance of making it to this life of luxury and you're down to 23.4. So now again, stylized, but meant to help us see a little bit more clearly how even if race is just a little thing, given the cumulative aggregate effects can have really profound Meaning. Impact, meaning, absolutely. Impact. This is, actually, you. no, we're, we're at episode three. So understand how profound it will be by the time we get to episode 12. 
Think about the cumulative effect of what we're learning. This is Race Class Episode 3. We've been talking with Boston University law professor Jonathan Feingold, whose scholarship explores the relationship between race, law, and mind sciences. We're offering this course once a month on the attitude. We're going to have a separate podcast for it. We encourage you to both listen, send us emails, comments, whatever, but we need to learn together. And the question is, are we promoting the conversation? Are we informing the conversation? Are we making this a robust conversation? It only gets that way if you participate as well. So thank you, Jonathan, so much for joining us for today's Race Class, Episode 3. Ciao. All you folks that you own my life You never made me sacrifice Demons there on my trail Standing at the crossroads of a hill I look to the left, I look to the right Hands that grab me on the every side